Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Greetings from the Hill Country of Central Texas. This is Revolution of Military Affairs, and I'm your host, Amos Fox. Today's episode kicks off Season 2 of Revolution of Military Affairs. The success of Season 1 exceeded my expectations. Initially, when I kicked off Season 1, it was only supposed to be about 6 to 8 episodes. Uh, but due to listener support and the interest that, uh, that, that, that the podcast drew, it continued on to whatever it ended up being, 21 episodes, I believe. So I just wanted to thank uh, thank all my listeners um, for for joining me each week as we have uh, great guests on the podcast and we discuss some interesting topics. Uh, so thank you very much, and uh, season two will be great. We're starting out today with Lieutenant General Retired Ben Hodges, uh, and then we will have uh, some really great guests in the coming weeks as well, to include Steve Leonard, who's also known as Doctrine Man, and uh, we have General Petraeus coming on, we have... Uh, some really interesting thought leaders, scholars, and analysts. Again, thank you very much for uh, for your participation up to this point, and I hope to continue um, to have you joining me each week. I, I really do appreciate it. All right, today on the podcast, we have Lieutenant General Retired Ben Hodges, uh, who I think most everybody who pays attention to the war in uh, Ukraine knows. And uh, uh, I just, I, I, you know, on top of being one of the the main people talking and examining uh, the conflict and, and discussing it in, in a in a coherent fashion in the public forum. I also just wanted to note that General Hodges was the uh, he came when I was in the Commanding General Staff College in 2016 and and spoke about the conflict and what had happened up to that point. And by 2016, things were kind of quiet and had stabilized, not stabilized, but were quiet and not nearly as um, the conflict wasn't as hot as it had been previously, but when he was talking, I, I generally at the time, because it had been un- underreported in the, in the media, I had no idea what he was talking about. It blew my mind. I was like, there was this big fight that went on in Ukraine. <laughs> what? what? And so uh, after that, I was, I really got interested in, in the conflict. And so 
if uh, you've st- you know followed anything that I've written or published or spoken about, you'll know that Russia, Ukraine is a central th- theme amongst all the work that I've done uh, since then. And so, you know, it's on a personal level, it's a, it's a it's really cool to be able to talk to General Hodges here and have him on the uh, on the podcast because that presentation he did in 2016, I forget what month it was, but 2016 at Fort Leavenworth. Uh, led exactly to this conversation we're having right now. So, sir, thank you very much, and I appreciate your time, and I'm happy to have you on today. Hey, Amos, thank you for the privilege, and I'm happy to know at least one person was awake uh, <laughs> in, out there in that big <laughs> during that time. That's right. Thank you, sir. All right, so today uh, we're going to talk about uh, the conflict in uh, in Russia or the conflict in Ukraine between Russia and Ukraine. Uh, and so I think, sir, I just want to start off. I'm going to basically work down a uh, policy to strategy to, to operation uh, level discussion on this thing. And so I guess the first question that I would have for you that I think needs to be really fleshed out is what are Russia's military objectives in Ukraine, both strategically and operationally, knowing that they aren't the same as they were at the beginning of the conflict? What do you think mm-hmm. that they are right now? I think that uh, Russia's objectives, uh, according to President Putin himself just last week, remain uh, completing the denazification of Ukraine, his words, uh, and in other words, to finish the job they started uh, several years ago, which is to eliminate Ukraine as a state and the idea of Ukraine as a state. So that that remains unchanged, which also makes me wonder, why does anybody think that Ukraine is going should negotiate uh, with Putin? Um, the, The challenge for Russia, though, is that they don't possess a knockout Capability. I mean, yeah. they they've suffered as what U.S. intelligence uh, declassified recently. You know, over over three hundred fifteen thousand casualties, uh, over three thousand tanks and armored vehicles. Uh, usually, when I get numbers from anything other than a source like that, I always just cut them in half. Yeah. Uh, I, I suspect the numbers are even greater hmm. uh, than what U.S. intelligence has released declassified. Um, they don't have a big uh, group of armored forces hiding in the woods somewhere waiting to you know, either break through Ukrainian yeah. defenses or exploit any breakthrough uh, cracks that might appear around Avdivka, mm-hmm. for example. So um, be- because they, they don't have this knockout, decisive punch sort of capability, um, I, there really are no bright lights on the horizon for the Russian side other than if we quit, if yeah. if. If U.S., Germany, U.K., France, others in Western Europe lose the will to continue supporting Ukraine, then Russia um, absolutely has a chance to eventually wear Ukraine all the way down. So that's that's why we're seeing these um, these human wave sort of attacks mm-hmm. where they're losing reportedly up to a thousand people a day. Um, they clearly don't care about their own soldiers. Yeah. None of these guys, by the way, come from Moscow or St. Petersburg. They come from out in the uh, out east. Yeah, hinterlands. Yeah. And uh, but it, it's done to convey the impression that they have endless resources, which contributes to this notion that you know they're going to win. It's inevitable. I think that that's an interesting uh, point too on the pulling forces from the east. Because then you're not uh, you're keeping the, the people in and around Moscow and St. Petersburg mollified. The, the, it doesn't impact them in the same way, and so he's you know Putin's able to buy more time in that regard. That was also something similar too, right, sir? In the 2014-2015 period, it seemed like a lot of the elements, the fighting forces that came in, 
uh, where those, you know, the tank brigades from out east, um, Ulan Udaid, I think, is one of the areas where, you know, those forces came in from. Was that a similar uh, technique being employed then, you think? I think that um, now, maybe even more than then, they're wanting to avoid uh, Russian citizens in and around the two main metropolitan areas appreciate or understand what's actually going on, which is interesting because, you know, the narrative is sort of that, you know, the Russian population, we can't reach them. They're all bought in, which is probably true to some extent. But yet the Russian government continues to avoid Mm. um, using troops from those areas uh, uh, in the meat grinder. So you don't have a bunch of funerals uh, in downtown Moscow or St. Petersburg. Uh, Correspondingly, uh, they've avoided, um, it appears they've avoided another mobilization in the three months prior to the uh, bogus election that they're going to run in March. So that tells me between these two things, they really do think about the impact on the population. And so I wonder if there's potential for us to exploit in the information domain that we have not yet done very effectively. Yeah, that's. I was going to ask you about that. I saw that the other day. I saw there's like another 300,000 troops they're looking to mobilize in the coming months or something. And if that was going to be uh, any sort of impact on the on the future operations, if you if you had any idea on that. But you said that, that that's been turned off? Well, um so on the russian side you yeah. know they uh, we've been hearing over and over and over they're going to do these big mobilizations but uh-huh. actually they they have not quite oh, okay. uh, lived up to the uh to the headlines and i think they don't they don't want to do another one here over the next three months because then that would really generate questions and it will become increasingly difficult to avoid taking troops out of the moscow and saint petersburg region yeah. Um, and at some point you would think that uh, these poor regions that have been supplying have been bearing the, the brunt of the costs yeah. of these uh, operations would would grow tired of that. But, you know, of course, I'm not an expert on Russia. I, I couldn't explain the dynamic or what's going on in there. And they are so poor that, you know, this is a chance yeah. for some to to get income that they would otherwise never see. I just think, though, that. Um, the the Kremlin is probably more sensitive to impact on the civilian population than we we perceive, hmm. and so because of that, we we ought to be. I mean, we can sell expensive stuff that that kids don't need to young people that can't afford it. Yeah. I mean, marketing is <laughs> yeah. you know that that is is part of who we are. Yeah. Why can't we turn that sort of talent and energy in, into the information effort uh, to try and reach Russian people somehow? And in the same vein, um, what are we doing to reach the top 50 or 100 oligarchs hmm. around Putin that he depends on to stay in power? Now, obviously, after Prigozhin's uh, very public execution, these guys are not going to raise their head above the parapet yeah. too much. Uh, but as long as they're not really feeling the economic pinch, and I don't think that they are, not significantly, you know, there's no pressure from them on Putin. Yeah. Um, I spoke to a sanctions expert yesterday, longtime sanctions expert from the U.S. government, and uh, he clarified that, you know, U.S. Department of Commerce, Department of Treasury, and Department of State all have roles to play, and that they have been going after the oligarchs ever since Russia's war against Ukraine started. But 
it's very time intensive, very tedious. Mm. Um, and the Russians are pretty good at, you know, laundering and, and hiding their money and different things. Yeah. It seems to me there's got to be some sort of artificial intelligence application that would help go through all the different mm. layers of financial information that are out there and pinpoint. I mean, Putin's got to be one of the richest people on the planet. We, we He should be feeling it as well. Okay. What's uh, so moving from that to the, uh, to the Ukrainian side, what do you, what do you see as the Ukrainians military objectives? I know that right now the Donbass, not completely, not all of Luhansk and Donetsk are occupied, but a good portion of them are. You've got that land bridge to Crimea and then you've got Crimea occupied. What is, is, you know, the complete uh, removal of Russian forces from Ukrainian territory, still their military objective. Well, I think that's the uh, the end state for the President Zelensky and his government is the ejection of Russia back to the 1991 borders. Mm-hmm. Um, now, I, I hear all the time that that's impossible. There's no way they can do it. That's true. They can't do it if we don't help. Um, and it's the failure of the United States and Germany and other uh, allies to clearly define and describe what is our desired strategic outcome? I mean, in all your education, you know, identifying the objective. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's kind of, you know, first day, <laughs> first first day sounds. Yeah, that's right. right? And, uh, and we haven't done that. And so when you hear we're with them for as long as it takes, I mean, that's an absolutely empty statement. So if the United States and Germany and, and other uh, countries that support Ukraine said it's ours, it's in our interest that Ukraine defeats Russia, ejects them back to the 1991 borders. We want them to win. Then there'd be no excuses about ATACMs or how much fuel an Abrams tank burns or how long it takes to train an F-16 pilot. That shit would be happening. Uh, but because we haven't declared our objective, you, you can't you can't come up with good policy if you don't have mm-hmm. a clearly defined objective. So that's, that's the most important thing that needs to be done here in the coming months. But in the absence of that, and of course, the uh, the nonsense going on in the U.S. Congress right now, holding up, uh, putting in question aid for Ukraine, that is pure oxygen and a big Christmas gift to the Kremlin. Uh, the Ukrainians know that they can't stop. I mean, they see what happens to villages that are occupied by the Russians. Yeah. And when you look at the map uh, and where the Black Sea is and where Crimea sits, it's obvious that Crimea is the decisive terrain of this war. Yeah. Now, that's... they they will never be able to rebuild their country and their economy as long as Russia occupies Crimea. So I think that remains the objective. Um, but, you know, we're a long way. Uh, I was wrong, obviously, in my earlier predictions. We're a long way from that right now. Yeah, what's So when I think about that, I think that the troops, physical troops, um, are probably the biggest shortcoming for Ukraine to be, be able to achieve that. In my mind, I think of, you know, when you play the game of risk, uh, you, first, you have to take a territory, then you have to, uh, you know, invest it with armies to hold that territory, especially if, you know, like Crimea, I think I agree with you, Crimea, I think is the decisive piece of terrain in this whole thing. And so if Ukraine were able to get in there and, and get a hold of Crimea, you'd have to also have sufficient force to hold it against a uh, counterattack, right? Um, and so, you know, maybe the Donbass would get seated, maybe the land bridge, perhaps, you know, but Crimea itself would, would certainly get counterattacked. What do you see as Ukraine's biggest shortfall uh, in terms of, uh, you know, means uh, in order to, to obtain those 1991 objectives or 91 borders? I'm sorry. Yeah. So um, I listened to the Sakir General Cavoli a, a while back and he said 
you know, uh, he acknowledged that Russia's main advantage is mass. Mm-hmm. And then he said, the, you can defeat mass with precision as long as you have enough time. And, and I think that's a great point, because with long range precision strike, you knock out the headquarters, the artillery and the logistics, which are necessary to enable mass. Um, you know, these, these hundreds of thousands of Russian troops that keep showing up, you know, these are this. It's not like, you know, the uh, <laughs> first cavalry division or the uh, 101st Airborne Division. These are hundreds of thousands of conscripts mm-hmm. and troops that have been forced to mobilize and are not well trained. So if you can eliminate the headquarters and artillery and the logistics for them, they're much easier to destroy. Uh, so we we have failed to give Ukraine the long range precision strike capability that they need. Uh, UK has provided Storm Shadow, a, a small number, which the concept of that was already proven with just three of them uh, in Crimea, in Sevastopol, forcing the Black Sea Fleet to begin to have to withdraw after yeah. just three Storm Shadows. Uh, but U.S. has stopped short of providing the 300-kilometer range ATACMS, mm. um, and Germany stopped short of providing the Taurus, which is about a 500-kilometer cruise missile. Um, these two weapons would make Crimea untenable for the Black Sea Fleet, for the Russian Air Force, and the Russian logistics base in Zhankoi. So that, that's got to be the first, if we're talking about capabilities. Yeah. Now, the F-16s, you know, obviously I'm an infantry soldier, I'm not a pilot, but I talked to senior um, Air Force officers that are rated in the F-16, and, you know, it'll be no problem having Ukrainian pilots trained on how to fly. It's going to take longer, of course, on how to employ those aircraft in combat operations in a very, very heavily contested yeah. uh, air defense and electronic warfare environment. So I, I, my guess is that it's summertime before we start seeing F-16s having effect. And, and I don't know, honestly, how many have been provided. Um, the the ammunition issue is going to be there. We're going to be talking about this for decades, how yeah. you know that we were all wrong about what we thought we needed. And now... Uh, we're trying to correct that, but ammunition production is not just about uh, physics. It's it's also about political will. These companies that make ammunition are not charities. They have thousands of employees. They have very complicated supply chains, um, and so the government has to make has to put in the order. Say, here's here's money for a zillion rounds of one five five. Make it as fast as you can. Well, then they can do that. They can start expanding production lines and uh, adding a shift and, you know, paying for the increased prices of the uh, materials that go into artillery ammunition or precision weapons. But we waited way too long. And then I hear, well, you know, we we can't give them a tackles because uh, we don't have enough. And then you hear also, well, actually, we don't, Army's not using them anymore. And then you hear they don't make them anymore. So you got like a, like a teenager giving you three different yeah. unrelated excuses for bad behavior, um, and none of them are true. Uh, the CEO at Lockheed said, huh, D- DOD never asked me about it. So it, and, and we're es- exporting ATACOMs to Morocco, by the way. So this is about political will. If we provided those things, um, I think we would see we'd be in a different place right now. So thank you for that. That's a, a fascinating uh, a fascinating answer to that question. I also want to ask you, because I started inward and I want to zoom out just a little bit. Uh, and I did that intentionally just because I wanted to I wanted to try and get the a little bit more detail up front. 
generally speaking, what is your assessment of the war right now? Well, I think <clears throat> I think I agree with uh, I think I agree with uh, General Jaluzny in the famous Economist article. You know, um, it was mm. printed as he said stalemate, but I think the actual translation of the Ukrainian word is deadlock, which is a different. Uh, okay a different yeah. meaning. Yeah. And then he lays out, I thought, in a very, very clear, professional, clear-eyed, sober assessment of where they are. And, and he talked about, you know, this electronic warfare environment, the uh, uh, omnipresence of Russian drones, uh, what what impact that has on their ability to do things. And so he's looking for solutions to counter Russia's advantage, apparent advantage, in drones. And... Yeah. Um, and then, of course, you know, air power. Now, air power doesn't have to mean a fixed-wing aircraft with a pilot in it. There's a variety of things that will help change that. And when I look at the Russians, you know, all the advantages they had at the start of this, nine years ago, they still only control 17% of Ukraine. They failed to achieve air superiority despite a, an enormous advantage in aircraft quality and quantity. They still have not achieved that. And because of that, they have not been able to interdict a single train or convoy bringing in ammunition and equipment from Poland to Ukraine. I mean, that's job one and job two for any air force is yep. air superiority and then interdict the other side. And the Russians have failed to do either of those. So I think um, it won't, it doesn't require a thousand F-16s for, for Ukraine to be able to compete effectively in the air domain. It's about air and missile defense capabilities. It's about counter air. It's about going after Russian bases from which their air force is operating. And then it's being able to get enough aircraft up in the sky to, to change that, change that dynamic. Yeah. And that's one of the things that General Zaluzhny highlighted is that, you know, without air power and, you know, you and I would have never been sent in an attack on a defense like that if we hadn't already achieved overwhelming air superiority yeah. and, and without hundreds of uh, breaching vehicles uh, required to get through all that stuff. And yet we've got people in the Pentagon and in other places criticizing Ukrainians that, you know, they didn't do it right or they didn't do it like we told them. That's bullshit. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for the award winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, the air power thing is an interesting uh, point because I think um, it's common sense. But looking back at the 2014, because I always try and connect 2014, 2015 to today, because I think it is connected. It's one big giant um, conflict, you know, and looking back at that time period, too, you didn't see Russia use air power hardly at all. And 
I, at the time, thought that that was a choice in order to stay below, you know, the threshold of the inter- international community and them saying, hey, you know, look at this, they're bombing cities and whatnot. But and <laughs> in hindsight now, it may have just been that they weren't capable of doing that because it looked like they were capable of doing that when you looked at Syria, you know, Russia's air, you know, relied predominantly on their air force down there. And then in the Donbass in 2014, 2015, you didn't see that. And so I, my assessment was they were intentionally not using air power there, but it just <laughs> seems like they don't know how, don't have the capability. They can't do joint operations, can't do combined arm operations very well. This is an excellent, you made two or three excellent points here, Amos, if I may uh, yeah. build on them. Number one, this is one conflict and we, mm-hmm. we need to, you know, the war didn't start February last year. It started That's when right. they invaded Ukraine nine years ago. Um, and so we need to keep that context in mind to how long this has been going on. Uh, so much of Russia's weakness, so many of Russia's weaknesses have been exposed. Ukraine has risen to the challenge, but much of Ukraine's problems were self-inflicted because, you know, the, uh, the corruption that existed back before 2014, their failure to uh, build up, rebuild their military capability, and then even as late as February last year, I was in Kiev early February last year with a small delegation and Kiev did not feel like a city that was getting ready for a conflict. So um, they, you know, they should have been making ammunition like crazy uh, yeah. and they weren't. And, and, and so there's a, a problem there. But the other excellent point that you made is that while Russia may have quantitative and qualitative advantage in aircraft, for example, that does not mean you have a great air force. You know, what makes our Air Force so good is this culture, the readiness culture of training uh, and maintenance and uh, doing the hard work required to do uh, uh, the various operations to, to get air superiority. Yep. You know, you've got you've to destroy the enemy's headquarters. You've got to destroy the enemy's air defense. You've got to destroy their installations. And then you can start knocking airplanes down. And you got to be prepared to go in and get pilots that were shot down. I mean, it's obviously a very sophisticated, complex, you know, air refueling, all those things that are going on to, to direct uh, aircraft um, towards uh, in a dynamic environment. You have to train like crazy for that. Same thing with the Navy. Um, you know, Russia clearly had the quantitative advantage uh, at sea over Ukraine. But what we have seen is that they had really poor Navy. Uh, yeah. Black Sea Fleet has a cool name, but it's not very good. Um, that's, they, that's half the problem, sir, isn't it? you got to have a cool name, right? Right. Uh, I asked the Navy, we know back when the Moskva was hit, you mm. remember uh, spring yeah. last year, and it was out there and it was listing, and I asked a Navy intelligence friend of mine, I said, what do you think about that? And he looked at it, he goes, those sailors hate that ship. I said, what do you mean? He said, they got off of that thing as fast as they could. Um, you know, in, in our great Navy, the motto was always, or the mantra was ship, shipmate self. Hmm. You, no matter what, you're going to save that ship. And it looked like that culture does not exist in the, in the Russian fleet. So my point is, you know, we hear that oh, Ukraine's counteroffensive failed and, you know, they got, they need time for them to start negotiating. Well, wait a minute. Russia has been uh, trying to launch an offensive for the past six months. And all they've done is lose tens of thousands of people and vehicles for the gain of a few square kilometers, um, and and they're moving backwards in the in the Black Sea. I think they're the ones that are in real trouble. I think uh, an interesting thing that you said too that reminded me of something that I heard you say a long time ago. So again, I it's one conflict. Yes, I completely agree. 
And there was a, I used to love the old SEPA podcasts that you used to do. And I, re- I remember on one of those podcasts, uh, you were arguing with some of the guests, some of the other guests, and they were, uh, they were trying to say that this, this, you know, this attack that came in February, 2022, uh, that would never actually happen. And, and you said something to the effect, well, you know, nobody thought that they would invade in 2014 either. And I always thought that was great because I've always been in the camp that Russia was going to come back and that uh, the more that we sat and didn't do anything about it, uh, the more we would be putting ourselves at a disadvantage. And that leads me to my last uh, my last question here for you, since we're getting close on time. Um, when you were the commander of U.S. Army Europe, you had a – and this is one of the things you talked about when you came to, uh, to Fort Leavenworth when I was in the command and general staff college. You had this uh, – um, strategy of make three, uh, 30,000 look like 300,000. And so, and I caught, I personally caught the kind of the tail end, the, the re- residual effects of that when I was a battalion operations officer in a, in a tank battalion, we ended up going to, we got a notice to no notice deployment to Poland. And we went to Poland for 30 months and trained with the Polish, uh, I think it was the 12th, uh, mechanized division, I believe. And, uh, that was, that was, you know, 20, that was 2019, 2018. But anyhow, the, uh, make 300,000, uh, or make 30,000 look like 300,000. What is your assessment of that, uh, that, that strategy now in hindsight? And what do you think the impact was of that on the, on the U S military, on NATO and other partners in the area? Well, thanks for remembering that. Of course, um, you know, when I took command back in November of 2014, Russia had already invaded Ukraine. Mm-hmm. My predecessor, Don Campbell, a wonderful officer, a great tanker. Um, I used to tease him about those tanker boots, but uh, a guy they're great, was sir. Yeah, they're, they're great. You got to get a pair. <laughs> yeah, not a chance. But uh, <laughs> he, he was an exceptionally good officer, and uh, he deployed... Uh, immediately after Russia invaded Ukraine, uh, a, a battalion of paratroopers from Vicenza, from the 173rd Airborne Brigade, uh, up into the Baltic countries in Poland. So we had a company, a company of paratroopers, so 110 troops yeah. in Est- each in Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland. And that the whole purpose, of course, was to, hey, the United States is here. We're yeah. with you. And that was a, and he did that within just days uh, of this happening. It was really remarkable. But it, it also reminded everybody the need for, for readiness, to be able to go on short notice uh, and to have that kind of a culture in your unit, whether it's an airborne unit, an armor unit, or artillery unit, or engineers, or whatever, logistics, whatever. Now, uh, when I took over from Don, of course, the Army had already made the decision to uh, inactivate the 12th Combat Aviation Brigade, biggest aviation oh, yeah. brigade in the Army. And so we had already lost the two armor brigades, so all we had was our striker brigade, and an airborne brigade and a combat aviation brigade. Those were my warfighting uh, combat units, if you will, um, along with one Patriot battalion. Uh, that I mean, that's it. And we had, you know, it was a total of 30,000 troops uh, that were there uh, stationed in Europe, 30,000. I mean, that's, that's a third of what fills up a major college football stadium. <laughs> yeah. And so um, we had the, uh, and I remember General... Campbell talking to General Odierno, who was the chief at the time, rest mm-hmm. his soul. Um, he uh, said, hey, Don, I'm telling you, the Army's already made the decision. 12th Cab is going away. That Those bills, that's being used to pay other aviation bills. This was part of the, if you remember, the ARI, Aviation Restruction Initiative. 
okay, which yeah. was an important modernization effort for the Army's aviation branch. Um, but that meant that most of our attack aviation was going to leave Europe. Hmm. And, uh, and so that was it, literally, there was almost nothing he could do. So when I saw that, I was like, okay, well, I'm not going to sit here and suck my thumb and whine to the Pentagon about, you know, I need more stuff. Yeah. But I realized that we were going to be in an economy of force mission. Yep. And, uh, of course, as old as I am, I was a lieutenant in Germany in the early 80s in the Cold War, and we had almost 300,000 troops stationed in Europe when it yeah. was West Germany, as well as in Turkey and uh, Italy and, and some other mm. places. I mean, it was, it was incredible. And here we are now, 30,000. When our mission was 300,000, it was to deter the Soviet Union, uh, assure allies, and protect America's strategic interests. And now with 30,000, our mission was to deter Russia, assure allies, and protect America's strategic interests. So the idea was, how do you make 30,000 look and feel like 300,000? And of course, to do that, that means you have to dump a lot more responsibility on young people. So you had captains were typically the senior officer in a country with their company or battery or troop. And uh, we had to get more out of allies. Um, we had to get more out of the guard and reserve. And yeah. so that was that that motto was our message back to the Pentagon. They said, OK, we, we can do economy of force, but I'm going to need rotational force, access to guard and reserve. And don't be surprised when you have a captain um, is the senior <laughs> American uh, yeah. up in, in Latvia or in, in Poland. Uh, and it, you know, I think what it did, it helped the army which always eventually gets it right, yeah. not always fast enough, but eventually we'll get things right. It bought time for the Army to figure out what kind of structure do you need for rotational forces, uh, APS, the preposition yeah. stocks, um, and kind of helping the, and also what I was really proud of our staff, we use multiple seaports uh, for each mm -hmm. rotation. And the purpose was to, again, make it look like we were all over the place but also to help all these different seaports regain muscle memory on how do you unload an Abrams tank or a Blackhawk out of a, uh, a cargo ship. So that was, I, I think we did, uh, the first time tanks showed up on a rotation, the batteries and every one of them were dead. I oh, mean, yeah, we, just, sure. we hadn't done that. Yeah. And so, you know, we obviously learned a lot from that as well. Yeah. The, uh, on a, on a personal level, with that, when I went to Poland for that month, we drew APS um, from a couple places in Europe. And when we got it, you know, we went right out. We were in uh, Drosko Pomorski. We went right out to the uh, uh, the ranges there in that area. And I'd never been to Poland, by the way. Beautiful country. Yeah. It was terrific. I loved it. Food was terrific. We ate, we had we had an economy a couple times, and it was uh, it was it was amazing. But uh, you know, talking about exercising things that hadn't been exercised before. I don't know how many times those those fleets had been pulled out, but when we got them, they were it was definitely rusty. Um, metaphorically speaking, there was a, several times when we had to stop training because there were certain oil in certain vehicles that you know couldn't be used beyond a certain mileage, and so we were already over the mileage, and we had to you know we had to stop and all that. But the other thing too, when I was in later down the road, when I was with uh, Fourth SFAB, which is aligned to Europe, um, part of our uh, early deployment cycle with with uh, with uh, U.S. Army Europe and now U.S. Army Europe Africa is is what you were saying, exercising some of those ports. And so we would 
there's some ports in Albania, some ports in Greece, some places that I had never heard of before that they were like, hey, this is a port that hasn't been used yet, but we have to knock the dust off of it. And like you said, sir, make sure that it can be used uh, to get things in that we need in. And so, you know, that, that make 30,000 look like 300,000. I mean, up until, I don't know, I was last doing that three years ago, but it, that, that, that strategy was still being um, affected on a daily basis there for sure. All right, sir. Well, uh, I think that's about it for today. I appreciate your time. Uh, is there anything that you're working on that you'd like to, uh, to to educate us on? Is there anything out there that you've got coming out? I know you had a book that came out uh, like a two year or two ago. Is there anything else that you're working on, sir? I, uh, yeah, I was a co-author with uh, Professor mm-hmm. Dr. Julian Lenny-French and uh, General John Allen on Future War Defense of Europe and they're talking about doing one about the Pacific. I don't know. That was that was harder than I anticipated. <laughs> and, and, I, and and Julian was the main writer, so I, I don't know if mm-hmm. I want to do that again. But um, you know, thanks. Yeah, there is something that's unrelated to Europe and Africa, but it's it. Uh, I mean, Europe and uh, Ukraine, but it's about our our legacy in the U.S. Army. Um, my oldest, uh, closest friend lives in Beaufort, South Carolina. We were plebes together at West Point a hundred years ago, and he was my <laughs> mother's favorite of all my friends. And uh, uh, I, Beaufort is now what I call home back in the States as well. You know, I'm in Frankfurt now, of course, but when I do go back to the States, Beaufort is my home, thanks to Chris. He's a retired uh, Army Colonel, Special Forces. And uh, he said, Benny, you know, right here in Beaufort, there was a regiment of soldiers in the U.S. Army they were all formerly enslaved men, and it was raised right here in Beaufort in uh, May of 1862. I said, Chris, come on, that's impossible. Beaufort, that's in South Carolina, right between Charleston and Savannah, the heart of succession country. How could the army of, uh, in 1862, created a regiment of black soldiers, former slave, formerly enslaved men? And he reminded me that the army and navy in, in the first real joint operation of the Civil War uh, launched an operation that uh, captured Port Royal Sound, which mm-hmm. is the second deepest natural harbor on the U.S. East Coast. It's Hilton Head on one side, Paris Island on the other side, mm-hmm. and the town of Beaufort, which today, by of course, you know what Paris Island is, but also yeah. Beaufort uh, Marine Corps Air Station, et cetera. So they captured that. Um, all the uh, the rebel soldiers left there, every white family left there, and about 10,000 uh, newly uh, self-liberated or self-emancipated men, women, and children gravitated towards Beaufort. Mm-hmm. And so the U.S. Army, of course, was totally unprepared. The War Department was unprepared for this uh, influx of what legally, legally in 1862 were still property, contraband. Mm-hmm. And so the Army had to figure out, well, what do we do? And fortunately, uh, the leadership there said, I bet some of these guys will fight. And so they created a regiment which was first known as the first South Carolina Volunteers of African Descent uh, was created. And they started doing operations there in the spring and summer of 1862. This is a full year before the much more famous 54th Massachusetts of glory fame. Yeah. And um, they... Uh, uh, eventually were redesignated as the 33rd uh, Regiment USCT, U.S. Colored Troops. But hmm. the activation of the first South Carolina Volunteers of African Descent marks the beginning of continuous service by African-Americans 
in the United States Army. There were blacks that fought in the revolution and in the War of 1812, and then it became illegal for blacks to serve in the early 19th century because slave owners were terrified of the idea of blacks having weapons and being trained and organized. So we went a few decades where it was illegal. So this is really a groundbreaking historic uh, accomplishment or milestone. So every black soldier in the U.S. Army today can trace their military roots all the way back uh, to these uh, incredibly brave men um, in May of 1862 there in Beaufort. So Chris and I have been working hard on trying to get this uh, into the Army's uh, history uh, the History Department at West Point has formally embraced it. They've done a staff ride already down there, and uh, we're doing some other work. Uh, but this also ties together uh, Harriet Tubman operating mm. in the area, uh, Robert K. Smalls, and other famous characters, and it all happened here in uh, in the Beaufort area. So that's you, you can hear it in my voice. It's something that gets me yeah. fired up. It's yeah. talking about the uh, First South and what we're trying to do to build up recognition for these uh, uh, brave soldiers. That's uh, that's fascinating. I had no idea, certainly, um, about that. I probably very few people do. Is, yeah. there a, is there a timeline on when we could expect to see anything on that, sir? Or is it, well, uh, we've, we've got, um, of course, we've done a couple of, uh, of early attempts at virtual presentations on it. Um, there's the city of Beaufort has um, decided to redesignate a local park there as First South Park. And so we're working with them on what are the kind of things you would want to have to have there to make this a meaningful park. You know, not just a bench on a sidewalk, yeah. but not Disney World, but, you know, something in between that uh, would be educational. I'm not I'm not into tearing down statues. Uh I, I do care about where statues are placed. You know, you know, statues about traders should not be given uh, pride of place in a city, but I'm mm-hmm. not into tearing things down. I would rather have this, this park be there so that parents could point to the story of the first South and then explain that that story compared to the story of the mm-hmm. Confederate Memorial that sits there in Beaufort. Um, so that, that work is underway. And we've also found a, uh, uh, a team that does documentaries and okay. um, had, had now they're infected with the uh, interest in this uh, in this incredible story. By the way, they were the first regiment of the U.S. Army to hear the enacted Emancipation Proclamation read out loud in public on, on one January eighteen sixty three. So there's a a place called Emancipation Oak there oh, in okay. uh, in Beaufort, inside the grounds of the Beaufort yeah. Naval Hospital um, that is there. And, I mean, there's just so many good stories um, that come out of this, and uh, it's fun. It's fun talking about it. Yeah, well, we look forward to seeing that, sir, and seeing the work that comes out from that as well. Um, just wanted to thank you again for your time. Thank you for your uh, the work that you're doing to help push, uh, you know, as much as you can help push Ukraine towards, uh, you know, winning this conflict. And uh, again, just on a personal level, thanks for being that uh, inspiration that got me started on this whole, uh, a lot of what I work on today is, is a result of that that presentation where there's 2,000 majors sitting in an auditorium, half probably three quarters of which are sleeping. Um, but I was paying attention. So thank you, sir. I appreciate it. It's been great getting to talk to you today. Same here. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. And uh, best wishes to you and your beautiful family. And 
uh, everybody that's listening for the holidays and for a healthy, productive 2024. All right, sir. Thank you. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.